Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're heading back in time and up in the world. Literally, up. Latitudinally and longitudinally, because we're talking to Michelle Paver about her stories of horror and isolation in the world's furthest, coldest places. This is the start of a mini-season of episodes focused on adventure horror. We've got Ali Wilkes coming up, Jenny Kiefer, Tim Leban, all to come in the new year. But Michelle Paver is the goat of this kind of endurance gothic. Her novels Dark Matter and Thin Air take the ghost story to extremes, literally to the poles and the summits of the Himalayas. We talk about how ghost stories work, their tradition and what perhaps differentiates them from horror. We consider the complexity of heroes with imperial perspectives and Michelle relates her own eerie, dangerous experiences out in the frozen wilds. This is perfect winter listening, even if we did record it in July. Like all episodes, this one is mostly spoiler-free, but the books have been out a while now, and we do get into some key life-and-death outcomes at the end of Dark Matter. Fair warning. Now, if you like Talking Scared, nay, if you love it, leave a review, and thanks very much. And if you want loads more stuff to listen to, sign up for the Patreon. A few dollars a month, and you can help keep this show rolling into 2024 and beyond. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or follow the link in the show notes or on the Talking Scared website. But now, come with me to a wide open place at the edge of the map. The skies are blue, the air is fresh and scented with adventure, but there are lonely things there and they've been waiting for you. Let's talk scared. Hello, Michelle, and welcome to Talking Scared. Hello, Neil. It's great to be with you. Well, it's a treat to have you here. I mean, God, I've, I've been reading you for the last 10 years. Like, how are, <laughs> first, Right, let's not get starstruck, Neil. How are you, first of all? How's your day going? It's going very well, thank you. All the better for having to sort of prepare to think about all things gothic. Um, oh. Yeah, it's excellent. I didn't think you did any preparation. I feel like stuff, <laughs> this stuff is in your bones. Um, this feels a little bit like being in the digital presence of horror royalty or or maybe oh. ghostly royalty. That's a good <laughs> question. Do you consider yourself a horror writer? I don't mind if people call me a horror writer, but uh, I don't. No, um, I, I consider myself a ghost story writer hmm. or a gothic writer. Um, to me, horror is a little bit more in your face. Well, I have to say, you know, having a think about dark matter, you know, there's, there's horror lurks on the edges, so, so I don't mind at all. That's one of the things we'll get into this, the poor things, the mm. poor seals and people, things that suffer in your <laughs> books. Um, but, yeah, no, I, yes. I certainly always think of ghost stories as a somehow distinct genre of, of its own, mm. really, that abides by its own rules and its own affect. And I, I certainly do think that about your work. It is... They are ghost stories first and foremost, aren't they? Oh, oh yes, very much so. And and the strange thing is when I set out to write Dark Matter, which was my first full-length ghost story, or well, my first ever ghost story, um, I did a lot of thinking about what are the elements of a ghost story. Um, I'd, I'd read somewhere that M.R. James himself reread 
um, Sheridan, Lefanu and mm. various classic ghost stories. So I thought, well, if if he could do that and analyse what goes into a ghost story, I will reread M.R. James and then and really reconsider what are the elements. So it was unlike other books that I've written, um, other genres, it was it was very considered, you know, what are the elements? Um, because, yes, I agree with you. You know, to me, it, it is distinct from horror, although, as I say, I, I don't really mind what label readers or booksellers put on the books. Well, good, good. Um, <laughs> we don't we, we, often this these conversations start by defining labels and then dispensing with them. So we've, we've, we've done yes. that bit. Um, I'm going to do a very gushing intro now, just because your books mean a lot to me and a lot to my listeners. Um, over the years I've been doing this show, I've had plenty of conversations with my audience about the books that, that really scared them the most. And yours mm. come up time and time again, particularly Ooh, Dark Matter. Um, and I, I do think, and I'm not saying this to butt you up for a nice interview. I don't <laughs> do that. Um, Please, go ahead. <laughs> I, I do genuinely believe that if we have an, a, a sort of British canon of ghost stories from well the fan you was Irish but you know through mm. MR James mm. I do feel like you are a modern a modern inheritor and and contributor to that canon that like dark matter oh, is is gosh. that pedigree of of ghost story I really do believe that well, thank um, you that's an honor thank well, you uh, and this is one of those lovely opportunities where we're not tying the episode into a new release so we can freely roam across your your back mm. catalog um, in particular, your sort of triptych of great modern ghostly gothics, Dark mm. Matter, we've mentioned, Thin Air and, and Wakenhurst. I'll, yeah. I'll be honest, the chat may be somewhat loaded towards the first two because I reread Dark Matter and Thin Air this week for this conversation. Um, Wakenhurst, not since it came out. But either way, there'll probably be spoilers, so listeners be warned. And if you haven't read Dark Matter, I'm going to say, Go away now. Pause this podcast. <laughs> go and read it and come back because it's it's one of the very few books that I am incredibly loath to spoil the impact of. But are you happy to delve back into your back catalogue, Michelle? Very much so. Absolutely. I I, I hope I can remember um, as many details as possible about how I <laughs> well, wrote it. Yep. I was going to ask: Do you find it easy to talk about books that have been out for a while? I mean, do the details stay fresh in your mind, or do they kind of evaporate in the air? It's funny. I mean, sometimes embarrassing details like names of characters can, can you know, slip one's mm. mind. But the process of writing, uh, no, that I do tend to remember, you know, how easy was it, which bits were difficult, you know, th th that I think stays with one. Because these books, I mean, they're not long, you know, Dark Matters, mm. I think only about 50,000 words. And I am a slow writer, but they take a lot of writing. They really do. And a lot of research, I imagine, too, because you are yes. really immersed in the minutiae of polar exploration, Himalayan mountain climbing. I imagine that is a, a big bulk of the work as well that probably doesn't even get credited. It is. Um, and, and, you know, research can sound so dead, deadly dull. And, you know, when people say, you know, as you said, and you rightly used the word minutiae, and, and that just sounds, oh, God, is the story <laughs> going to be packed full of detail? And of course, it's not. Um, I need to know the detail. I need to know what kind of... Um, exploration expeditions people did in the arctic in the 1930s um but then it's it's only a couple of lines or, or, or something about what they ate or something that will go in the story but the real reason i do the research well there are several reasons it's partly to get the details right partly to make you feel that you're there mm -hmm. because i've been there but also to get ideas 
you know, and, and that is the, the, the great thing uh, about research that I don't think gets mentioned very much. You know, for dark matter, I went up to Spitsburg and I mean, I'd been before in the summer and I went back in the winter. And one of the things I found um, that, that I, I hadn't heard of in any of the books I'd read was this reference to a bear post. You know, it was this post that you stuck mm-hmm. in front of, you planted in front of your trapper's hut and then you waited, you baited it and you waited for your poor unfortunate polar bear to come along and then you shot it. Um, and instantly you know, that gave me a whole episode um, in, in the story, which is perhaps has a, has a hint of the mezzotint, you know, the M.R. James story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't have, that, that was a sort of footnote in a book on po- polar exploration that I, little booklet that I'd picked up and then seen in the tiny little local museum in Longyearbyen in, in Spitsbergen, where they actually had a bear post demonstrating, you know, in the museum. So there we go. You know, yeah. that's where the research really helps. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I, mean, I want to ask you about the bear post in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but it, it is funny with research because there is a strange parallel between you and another writer that I think really evidences the the different ways of approaching it. Because mm. I, don't, I don't know if this has occurred to you, but you wrote Dark Matter, which is set in a kind of benighted polar expedition. Um, yep. And then you wrote Thin Air, which is set in the Himalayas. And as you say, yes. they're both quite svelte, sort of terse books. Dan mm. Simmons wrote The Terror, which is set in a very benighted mm. Arctic expedition. And he wrote The Abominable, which is about climbing Everest. Oh, goodness, so he did. It's always struck me that those two those two pairs work in tandem, but Whereas you, yeah. as you say, you, you seem to take the research and you know it and you use it to build this world in a really efficient way. Dan Simmons seems to have never met a footnote that he doesn't want to somehow cram into his novels. So right, his the, the Abominable is like, there's an entire section in that book that's about, about 100 pages long where they go climbing in Wales for no discernible purpose other than to talk about how I, I, I have to say I haven't I haven't read it but um okay yeah. well that is a different approach yeah yeah you, you seem to weave mm. it in a lot more as I say a lot more efficiently oh thank you thank you um right you've mentioned dark matter and the bear post I think mm. we probably for the three listeners I may have who, who aren't aware <laughs> of it can you can you tell us a little bit about dark matter sure and, and I suppose also, as part of the same question, how you took that kind of swerve towards the ghostly, because you hadn't written ghost stories previously. Well, can I ask that first? Mm-hmm. Um, of course. Because in a sense I had, um, I mean, I, I started out writing sort of love stories, historical love stories. Mm-hmm. And no, you're right, there are no ghost stories, ghosts in that, although there was one, a, a sort of shadow of a ghost who crept into a couple of episodes in... in um, a book I set in colonial Jamaica, and I just really enjoyed writing that. Um, but then the children's series I wrote, The Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, the mm. Wolf Brother books, okay, they're set in the Stone Age. Ghosts, demons are part of that world. Um, they're not ghost stories, but they are very much full of spirits and they're quite scary books. So, you know, there is a continuum, really. I've always been interested in the possibilities of the human mind, you know, mm-hmm. beliefs and that sort of thing. Um, but it was when I was writing that what I thought then was the, the final book in that series, Ghost Hunter, which is a Native American term for wolves. 
Um, it was when I was writing that book that I thought, oh, the next book I think I'll, I'll try to write is the full-length ghost story. Um, and I'd, I'd had the title Dark Matter for about 10 years before then. Um, and I, it, it originally started out, it was going to be a, um, a film sort of script because I thought I might be able to write film scripts. Well, I can't. Um, but I'd shelved that idea. But I had this title. I liked the title Dark Matter. So let me set the scene for those who, who don't know what it's about. Dark Matter, um, it's 1937. So the shadow of war sort of hangs over London. Um, our hero, Jack, he hates his life and he jumps at the chance of joining an Arctic expedition. Five young men are heading off to Spitsbergen or Svalbard, as it's now known, the islands between Norway and the North Pole. Um, and they're going to spend a year there. But things happen and gradually, um, one by one, they have to drop out and Jack ends up alone in this remote part of Spitsbergen as the polar night descends, four months of darkness. Or is he alone? Um, because he gradually finds out that there's something walking in the darkness. So that, that's the premise of Dark Matter, what happens when you know the night is going to last several months and you're stuck in a haunted research station in the Arctic. So, yes, I was explaining this book to my wife um, and I, I started the conversation by saying it's one of those stories. Everyone just kind of slaps their forehead and goes, how did I not think of that? You know, it's <laughs> such a neat idea. The only other story I can think of that has that same kind of head slapping obviousness that it should be written is is the graphic novel 30 Days of Night. Are you aware of that? You know, I the first time I heard of that, I, I wasn't aware of it when I when I wrote uh, Dark Matter. Um, but when Dark Matter was translated into French, and I went across to Paris to publicize it, they showed me the title, and it was Quarante. You know, it was the French version, Thirty uh -huh. Days of Night, or something, something similar. It was a reference to it. It was sort of, and, and then they, I said, what What does that mean? And, and they explained that it was a reference to this this graphic novel mm. which I ought to know but didn't so there we are yeah and it so for those who don't know I mean I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't but 30 days of night is the idea is that there is a town in Alaska um that has like a polar winter and mm. on the first night of said 30 days of night uh, vampires arrive and take over the town and you know, obviously there is a kind of similar theme there which is the the power of an, un, an unending night or a you yes. know, a long night of the of the body and soul. Um, yes. Having been to the pole, what's a polar night like, Michelle? It's really strange. Um, I went in late November. Well, yes, it was November because I wanted I wanted to experience not only the polar night, but also the strange sort of almost twilight that you get. Um, and I only had a week, so I had to do it. So I. I when it's dark, it's not really pitch dark. It's not pitch dark because it's there's snow, and so you get the snow glow from stars um, and or the moon. So the moon becomes incredibly important. Um, you don't tend to use. There's no point using a flashlight or a, a torch because that means you can't see because it means your eyes aren't adapted to the dark. Mm -hmm. So it's much better just to switch the flashlight off and. So it's sort of shades of grey in a way. Um, 
at times it when it, when the sky clouds over yes it gets very dark but not not completely dark and then before you get the true polar night you get this strange phenomenon of a sort of false daylight um when it seems like it's getting light and and your your body and mind think oh the sun's going to come up and then it gets dark again because the sun has just sort of approached the 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 horizon and then gone down again and that's very disorienting mm. you know it happens in the morning and the afternoon um and so it's also, it is frightening, um, even if you're not scared of ghosts. Um, for example, in Spitsbergen, one has, you know, polar bears are a real threat. So, you know, you can't leave the town unless you've got someone with a gun with you and preferably a husky to smell out polar bears. And they're very good hunters. And so every sort of snow drift or whatever <laughs> could be a polar bear. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you don't want to lag behind your, your guide all sorts of strange audio effects. Um, I mean, I think in Dark Matter, there's at some point, uh, Jack, the, the hero, talks about, you know, walking in his snowshoes and thinking he can hear footsteps behind him. And I had that experience. Um, I was obviously lagging as much behind as I could, behind sort of two other people and the guide and the, and the husky. And I kept hearing these snowshoes behind me and then when I stopped, it stopped. And when I went on, it went on. So it was obviously some kind of an echo coming from the snow crust or whatever, but it was strange. And that, you see, is another example of where research gives you ideas. I've never read about that in books, um, but it just gave me the idea to put it in. Have you ever heard of the supposed third man syndrome? Oh, yes, yes. Um, that particularly comes up in the mountaineering context, mm. doesn't it? And actually, speaking as a sort of ex-biochemist, there has been some fascinating research done in, I think it's the University of Lausanne, and, and they've kind of recreated that in the lab. And, and they think what's happening is that under extreme conditions like, you know, altitude or exposure or being alone, the brain's sense of where you are in space gets dislocated. Um, and so actually the third man is, the ghost is yourself. It's, it's your brain saying, I'm here, but I'm also there. Oh, that's creepy. It is creepy, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. that's that's both rationalising and actually more creepy. Well, that's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, for, for those who, I think I've mentioned on the show before, but for those who don't know that the third man syndrome or phenomenon is the idea that pairs of, I don't know why it's the third man, presumably it's a, an extra man to however many men mm. you have, but mm. there is a sense that there's some, just people have a general sense and it's not really like a sense of like, oh, I can hear that or, or I can see that. It's mm, more about just mm. like a, just like an, an extra sensory thing that there is someone else with you on the group. Yes. Um, yes. But the, the idea that it's you, that you are. Yes. Because the a ghost of, is yourself. Yeah. yeah. Because that ties into kind of like doppelgangers and it ties into. It does. Into, it does. It, it does. The Brock and Spectre, that's another one. The Brock and Spectre. Um, yeah. I talk about the grey man of Ben McDewey all the time. Yeah, like that's okay. one of my yes. Sorry, listeners, I can't go into all of these. Google it. The Grey Man of Grey Man of Ben McDewey. I've talked about it before, it's one of my favourite kind of weird phenomenons. Um yes. but it puts me in mind of a brilliant um piece of writing in Peter Straub's ghost story. Yes. A character wakes up in, in the morning and his wife is looking at him oddly and he hears she says to him something like um, it's something about like I I saw a ghost, and as the book continues, he reevaluates what she said, and then he hears that what she actually said was I'm a ghost, and then finally realizes what she said is you're a ghost. 
I'd forgotten that. Mm. I love that book. And it's years since I've read it. I had yeah. forgotten that. Yeah. And I'm not quite sure what the yeah. link I'm drawing is between what you just said and that, but there does seem to be something there. Well, yes. You know, like... and, and, and so much of it is about the, the possibilities of the human mind. You mm. know? Um, because, the, because the third man, I think it's called the third man because quite often you, you climb with a, a buddy, a climbing buddy, you know, a climbing partner, and then there's a third one there. And, mm. and the awareness people have often said, and these are hardened mountaineers, you know, have said it's a bit like the sense you have in a dream. You you, you can't, you don't necessarily visualise a person, but you mm-hmm. know they're there. Um, which yeah, there's not, there's not like a lot, there's not like a sensory logic to it, more just yeah. an understanding yeah. that someone is there. Yeah. And what yeah. I what I like is that um, in both dark matter and thin air, you take what is normally a consoling phenomenon, this idea of another person. And you turn it into something much more dark and malign. Both both books contain a really chilling scene that I just wish could be, could be put on the screen, where the protagonist looks up at one point and for a moment thinks there is an extra person in the group, mm. and it's mm. it it's just a really creepy sort of almost like a jump scare, you know, but a much more yeah. psychological one. Yeah, I think I think in Thin Air that came about particularly because. Very luckily, I'd been to the National Film Theatre when they were screening a whole load of all the original footage of people climbing um, in, you know, the, the great climbers in the 30s and 20s in the Himalayas. And I just noticed how similar they all look when they're all togged up mm. in their, you know, huge canvas hiking gear and their goggles. You can't tell them apart. And that's one of the difficulties, I think, when you're filming um, climbing stories because people can't tell the characters apart. Yeah. But then, you know, that does make it give you the potential for, okay, what if someone you think is your climbing friend and it turns out not to be? Mm. I mean, we've referenced Thin Air. I'll just I'll just explain that Thin Air is a ghost story set during a uh, an expedition to, to summit Kanchenjunga. Um, yes. I think that's all we need to tell people at this point, just for reference. Yeah. But so you visited the Himalayas as research for that, just like you visit visited the Arctic for dark matter. I've got to ask you, which yeah. was the more terrifying place? Oh, I think they were both terrifying in different ways. I mean, Spitsbergen or, or Svalbard um, is is scary because of the polar bears. <laughs> you know, more, more than the the, the dark. You, you just think, gosh, I've really got to watch it. And also, you know, just the ice, you know, put your foot through something and, you know, you go through the ice, then you've had it. So it's physically scary. Um, and and then the, the, the sort of metaphor, metaphysical scares, I think, can come from the imagination. Um, the Himalayas, that was physically scary, but in a different way. I mean, we experienced a very, very violent storm um, mm. at, I think we were about 15,000 feet. That was very high up. And that and that was scary because I was I'd, I'd paid the single tent supplement, so I had my own tent, um, <laughs> which was great. But then you know you hadn't realised how vulnerable you feel in a tent, um, you know, lying in this tent, and then there's lightning and thunder and hail, and there's just a thin piece of frozen canvas between you and the outside world. And then the, the storm went, and I woke up again, and I heard footsteps crunching through the snow. I wasn't scared, but I was also thinking of my character, Stephen, you know, and I was thinking, gosh, that would be scary. Yeah. If if you're not sure who's on the other side, because mm-hmm. there is only a line of thin layer of frozen um, canvas. So, 
I, th- I think it's partly not that I find necessarily the the um, environment itself scary, but because I'm inhabiting the character. You know, I only ever do the research when I've probably written the first draft and and certainly done most of my other research. So I am the character when I'm there, uh, and then that can produce the scares. Yeah, God, that must have been freaky, like hearing someone walking around, because it puts me in mind, yeah. when I was reading that scene in the book, it puts me in mind of, of there's a sort of famous internet meme that has gone around. You, you know the the old Hemingway thing about the shortest story, like children's shoes never worn, all oh, that yes, stuff. Oh, yes, So there's, there's an internet version, um, which is, it's something like the the astronaut was sitting, you know, at his table in the space station, something like that. Hmm. And he heard a knock on the door. And obviously, the, you know, the premise being that there can't be anyone knocking on that door because No, it's... no, that's great. And, yeah. But there's an extent to which when you're like halfway up a Himalayan mountain, you may as yes. well be in space. You know what I mean? Yes, so absolutely. There shouldn't be. Yeah, yeah, there shouldn't yeah. be. There can't be anyone out there. Like, you, you know, yes. you've itinerized your group. You know who is there and who can be there. And then hearing a footprint. That's a, right. Hearing a footstep must be so unnerving. So... Yeah, I and, think and I'd then, have been down that um, mountain, Michelle. <laughs> well, you know, and, and and then also, you know, that again, the research kicks in because I found out in one of the mountaineering accounts that I'd read of the period that they often had little sort of celluloid windows in their tents. So I thought, oh, fantastic, because now whatever's out there can look in. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's that's the fun bit. And, and the, also the sense of being vulnerable, physically vulnerable in a tent came home to me because on a previous night, a yak had run amok <laughs> among the tents and I'd been sort of half awake and very, very tired after a day of going on downhill. Um, so I was vaguely aware that if the yak tripped on one of the guy ropes and fell on me, that would be end of me, you know, end of Michelle yeah. Paver and no, no more thin air. Um, but then I fell asleep because I was just too tired. So, you know, <laughs> it's the it's the... You're physically vulnerable, but and mm. then you're also metaphysically vulnerable. So yeah. yeah. Jesus, yeah, that's uh, that's intense. Death by yak. Um, of course, you know somebody could get that from just camping in their back garden. I suppose you don't have to go to the Himalayas, but uh, no, you know. I imagine it exacerbates things somewhat if you do. It does, a bit. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as you say, it's like being in space. I've got to ask a nerdy question now, and you may mm. roll your eyes, but I've got to ask this because I am a nerd about these things. Did you at any point consider putting yetis in this novel? <laughs> I never once considered putting a yeti in the novel, no. Um, <laughs> but it but it is a good question because have I mentioned it? Because I think... Oh, please tell have... me you've seen a yeti, Michelle. Please tell no, me. No, no, I haven't. No, no, but... Uh, I think that, that there was that there were there were some wonderful beliefs of the mm. local people, um, and I did wonder how far to go down that route of including them, um, and and of course Kanchenjunga itself is a sacred mountain and still is. Um, so, but I don't think you know, that the snowman ever really reared his head. No. Okay. Okay. Listeners to this show know that I have a real fondness for kind of hairy hominid stories. Oh, do you? So, oh, yeah. Okay. I, it's oh, the okay. one belief I cling to. It's kind of like my 40 year old Santa Claus. You know, I won't let it go. I still think, please let this be something out there. I, I agree. I agree. And I, and I would, you know, and occasionally there are documentaries hmm. about it and, you know, those well-known sightings and that very famous mountaineer whose name I can, I've forgotten who said he saw, saw it. Um, oh, I can't remember his name was it, now. Was it Hillary who saw it? Mm, 
No, I wasn't thinking of Hillary. It, it, he may have done, but mm. it was no somebody much more recent. Um, oh, but, oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know that famously um, Jimmy Stewart stole a Yeti relic from Tibet. <laughs> That's a whole other story that should be right. kind of novelised. But yeah, okay. Jimmy Stewart, on behalf of the US, stole a Yeti knuckle bone from Pangbosha Monastery. Wow. That's cultural appropriation big time, isn't it? Just a touch, yeah. Um, We've kind of reassuringly got into things being scary pretty quickly in this conversation. It sometimes takes longer than that. Um, Dark matter is certainly scary as hell. And obviously fear is subjective, right? But for me, the most chilling part in the entire book is this bit when Jack... This this lone this man who's been left alone on this on this glacial island is reduced to taking his daily walk by just circling the hut in the dark, mm. keeping one hand on it at all times so that he doesn't wander away. And there's just something so desperate and and small and sad about that. It haunted me the thought that that's that was his life. He was confined to this hut. Um so that's my scary thing. Like, is there a part that stands out for you? Because I, I read that you creeped yourself out a bit when you were writing Dark Matter. I did. And and, and thank you for sharing, you know, your scary moment. And that's that's fascinating. Um, really interested in that because to me that wasn't one of the, the spookiest moments. Um, I mean, I, I just wanted the whole book to be imbued with dread right mm-hmm. the way through. And it certainly wasn't in the early drafts, sort of just sort of spotted with dread, but I wanted to be soaked all the way through. Um I think for me, one of the, the the times I found it scary was when he gets lost because there's a sort of whiteout. He can't find his way back and then he does. And he thinks, okay, fine, I, I can see the cabin. Um, so, you know, I, I'm saved. And then he hears sounds that shouldn't be. And he mm-hmm. feels and an, an sort of suddenly feels dread. And I think for me, suddenly being taken over by fear must be a terrifying thing in itself. You know, why am I suddenly feeling dread? And then I'm hearing these horrible sounds, which turn out to be something to do with knives. I won't go into too much detail. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I, f- I found that frightening, writing that. To me, that that felt like a, um, a nightmare. I, but there was just a general sense. I was writing it, partic- I was rewriting it, which is the really intense time when I've got the structure down and I'm rewriting it. Um, I was doing that in the winter, and there was a, just a general sense of dread, and I remember my dreams were quite dark, and and the, you know it was it was more of that a general sense of dread and unease mm. when I was writing it. Um, I suppose because I was identifying very strongly with Jack, and you know, mm. he was spiraling downwards. <laughs> I mean, it is a book of the winter, very much. It's quite funny, listeners. We haven't we haven't told them that we're we're actually having this chat in the middle of a scorching July. <laughs> um, <laughs> but by the time they hear this, it will be. That the back end of November and things we've got grimmer certainly here in the UK, mm. but it, yeah, mm. it's a book that is suffused with winter, you know. And I love some summer horror. I love kind of coming of age summer horror, you know, like romping through that that kind of hot July with monsters on your trail. But there's yes. something about ghost stories that is so indebted to the winter. Yes, I, I think for for me certainly, um, I tend not to read that much gothic during the summer. But once we get to beginning of October, then into, you know, moving towards in this country, you know, when we, we, the clocks go back and everything, um, something, a switch 
flicks in my brain and I suddenly reach for my shelves and there are many of them of anthologies and you know I have to be careful about M.R. James obviously not reread him too much or Edith Wharton another great favorite but um, yeah for me it's winter definitely um, although having said that I did quite a lot of my research for dark matter in the summer um, <laughs> in the, in the safety <laughs> Yes, and and it's, sometimes it's good by contrast. You know, you're sweltering mm. in your study, and so it's quite nice to write about you know, the cold. Mm. Could I presume to recommend a book to you that I think you could read yes, in the summer and enjoy? Do. So I actually recorded this interview only a few weeks ago at the time that we are speaking, but it'll be months mm. ago by the time this comes out for for listeners. Um, but because of the the, the interest in, in stories that you've mentioned, M.R. James, Benson, mm. people like that, um, there is a a novel called The Others of Edenwell by Ooh. Verity Holloway that right. came out. It's got the, ta- the, the, the weird time dilation here. It, I'm going to say it came out back in, in July, even though it is still July now. Um, and so, Could you say the title again? Yeah, it's called The Others of Edenwell. The Others of Edenwell, lovely mm. title, yeah. Um, and the reason I think you'd like it is it's a book that is mired in the kind of Edwardian Gothic of that period. And it's written in the voice of the Edwardian Gothic of that period. Oh, excellent. I described it at the time as E.M. Forster meets Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. Oh, marvellous. You've sold me. I've just written it down. Excellent. I, I think you, I, th- I really think you get a lot from it because it, like you said, when you first wrote Dark Match, it was spotted with dread. It's a book yeah. that's spotted with dread rather than yeah. in any conceivable way an overt horror novel. Yeah. And that's yeah. a little a little plug for the listener to go back and listen to that episode too. Um, but back, back to you, Michelle, right? So mm. you've already mentioned the bear post. So yes. first of all, if you could just explain again what that is and then also tell me how it accrued such a kind of symbolic importance in the novel. Because I think Freudian analysts could do a whole <laughs> thesis on the bear post in Dark Matter. Right. I hadn't thought of that, actually. <laughs> um, yes, well, a bear post, uh, very simply put, is a post that a trapper would plant um, a few yards away from their, vertically upright, a few yards away from their hut, and then hang a piece of seal blubber on it, and then hide in said hut with rifle, and wait for a polar bear to come along and then shoot the polar bear. Um, obviously for the fur. In in the story, it's there. It's it's there when the expedition comes to Gruhuken, which is the, the location. Uh, and so nobody thinks anything of it and they just build their cabin um, near it. But when Jack is on his own, he starts to become a bit fixated on it. I mean, I think that the scary bit I mentioned when he hears the, the horrible sounds and feels dread, that's near the bear post. Mm-hmm. And that might be one of the first times that we really sort of focus on the bear post and that he does. And then later on, as he becomes more and more, you know, obsessed or um, paranoid, whatever you want to say, or haunted, he starts to worry that the bear post is perhaps getting a bit closer to the cabin. Um, And I think he gets a bit obsessive about it, keeps checking it, and then he has to stop himself checking it. Um, In the end, he chops it up. And he ends up, I think he ends up burning it um, and then possibly inhaling it. So, you know, <laughs> th- 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 there's this sense that the bear post almost standing in for the ghost and is coming closer mm. and closer. Um, but it always that just in his mind. Mm. Uh, and then we learn later that horrible things happened at the bear post. Mm. Uh, and that's all part of the haunting. 
Um, in terms of you know the symbolism and everything, you know that's really interesting, and, and it's it's what I love about talking to people who've read my stories is that everybody has a different take and things that I've never even thought of, and I'd love to know what other writers do, but I'm not somebody who thinks of symbols when I'm writing at all. Um, I don't think you can reverse engineer things and, and sort of say right, and now what am I going to have as a symbol? The theme is this. What am I going to have as a symbol or something like that? I just, I'm drawn to, well, with Dark Matter, I was drawn to writing a story about a, a man trying to survive on his own in the Arctic night. Um, the bear post seemed frightening. I didn't analyze why. I just, you know, I, I don't tend to analyze as I'm writing. Um, of course, as, you know, draft after draft after draft take shape, I start thinking, oh, that, that, that's a useful image. You know, and, and, oh, this is the theme. But these things sort of come up from the unconscious. I mean, that's where stories come from, particularly mm-hmm. ghost stories. You know, why was I drawn to the polar night? I don't know. doesn't really matter. I, I, I don't ask myself why. Um, the whys can come later. But it's much more about what's going to be effective. Um, so, yeah, I, I to this day, I don't really know what the bear post signifies except that i've always found something like a post just standing on its own very frightening it can be frightening and i suppose in the same way you know that evokes standing stones you know Mm. a single standing stone is more frightening than a circle of them that's very true i've never considered that before but yeah (laughs) it is just one one standing stone is more frightening um and then the thought that it might be able to move you know, and also I suppose a post is a very simplified human being. You know, it's it's just like um, it could be a human being, you know, at a distance. And actually, anthropologically, there are certain kinds of posts created by some type of Indigenous Australian or tribe of Indigenous Australian. And I think they've all died out and nobody knows what these posts really signified. But, you know, there are all sorts of different references through different cultures where a single post can be quite scary Mm. so that was probably playing in my mind but on an unconscious level you build a similar relationship between the protagonist and a rucksack in thin air Um, (laughs) and i I wondered from a practical sense is it just really important in this kind of i don't know ephemeral slightly ephemeral ghost story to have something concrete to focus the protagonist's fear on I think that's a very good point. I mean, I'm not saying I would always do it. In, in fact, in the story that I'm, I'm sort of in the process of finishing now, I, I don't think I have really got something physical. Um, but it does help. Um, again, it comes up naturally. I mean, that the thing with the, the rucksack, that was partly a reference to um, the kit bag, Aldrin and Blackwood. I don't mm. know if anyone knows that story, but it's a, a horribly scary story. Oh, I don't know uh, that story. About a, Oh, it's brilliant. It's about a haunted kit bag. And um, it's brilliant. Uh, all I can say is it's marvellous. And there's a, there's a bit when the, the protagonist is just fumbling for a light switch, which is swinging and he can't reach it. And, uh, and the quality of the writing is superb. So, so there was a slight reference there. I mean, I'm not into doing homage and that sort of thing. But I remember thinking, oh, you know, something inanimate, but personified mm-hmm. can be very very frightening and of course mr james himself has done it um oh you know that that one when there's a sort of 
it's almost like a bag which puts its arms around, you know, the person's head. Um, uh, it was that stalls of barches because I can't remember. Oh, it's so little with um, a sheet in or whistle and I'll come to you, my lad. You know, it's so well, there we go. Thank yeah. you. That's much better. Yes, exactly. Um, because it, it's the unnatural, you know, it's mm. something inanimate which is seems to be animated, and that's what is so frightening. Um, so, so that's that's really what one's making use of uh, in that, and then to, to use something every day, but incredibly important in in the mm. context of you know if you're twenty four thousand feet up a Himalayan mountain, <laughs> just makes it all the more frightening, and and the idea of it moving when when you're not doing something that you know shouldn't be, it shouldn't have moved, or did it move, or did I move it, you know it plays with your perceptions so um... well exactly and i think what what you do really well in both instances and how do i put this if you would if these people were just haunted by ghosts and mm. there is i know i know that some readers like to find ambiguity in whether or not they even are haunted by ghosts i i mm. personally think it's quite difficult to say they're not in in both stories mm. but mm. um you know if they are haunted by ghosts and it's just a supernatural force, then really, as a writer, you've got so much scope that, you know, there are no limitations almost with that. And that, and that can in itself become a limitation. Whereas with something physical, the, the, the idea that that thing, has it got closer? Has it not got closer? Is it animated? It's a much more circumscribed, practical way to get across the sense that someone really doesn't know whether they're in their right mind or not. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. On um, uh, uh, the one hand, I think that's a great point. On, on, on the one hand, it's it's very definite, you know, mm. in, in one sense, you know, oh, I thought it was on the left and now it's on the right or something like that. Um, but on the other hand, you can't have it sort of flying through the air mm. or something stupid because then you're in the realms of fantasy. So, so you've got to get the balance right, Um but it's great fun because there's lots of ways in which you can imbue something with dread just by the sort of imagery you use. You know, um, you can talk about the mouth of a rucksack as opposed to the opening. Yeah. And, that, and just by using that word, it's, it's, do you really want to put your hand in its mouth? <laughs> uh, you know, um, there's all sorts of ways in which, and, and it can be slumped, you know, lopsided, you know, with its head on one side or something like that. Um, so there's lots of ways in which you can, create dread or unease shall we say in a, in a reader just by using imagery that is a bit off um and of course you don't want to overdo it and perhaps now i can't ever do it again because we've talked about it so much <laughs> but um it it gives you scope and also just from a practical point of view you know you've got a man on his own up a himalayan mountain you need him to interact with something um otherwise it's all in his head and then that risks becoming boring that's very true it's almost like in in the tom hanks film castaway with the the oh, volleyball yes. wilson but if wilson yes. was trying to kill him yeah exactly if wilson's turned nasty that would have been <laughs> <laughs> yeah they missed a trick there didn't they, yes. didn't they just, yeah. and then you know his yeah. grief when wilson is is washed away in the in the final storm he's really you know no that scene still it's... breaks my heart every time yeah, oh. yeah. To slightly change tack, but to stay with dark matter, I'm going to ask you a question now, right? And, and the answer may simply be that I'm an idiot. I noticed something on this second read that left me oh, wondering, God. right? Around the halfway point, Jack is writing about a an act of savagery that he's discovered. Mm -hmm. 
he, he basically writes this. He writes, quote, writing that has put me in the mind of something that I haven't thought about in years. And I don't want to think about it now. I won't. I refuse to write it down. And then in true gothic form, I was expecting a revelation, but it doesn't mm. seem to ever come. Have I missed something? Or is there something that Jack is genuinely refusing to tell the reader? Oh, gosh. I don't know if I can answer that. Um, except I, I would have to look at the... <laughs> you have asked me something that I can't answer. Um, I'm not in the habit of writing something like that without answering it later. Um, I'm just wondering, because there's a bit, a childhood memory he has of, of a dog being rather being blinded oh yes wondering whether that was what he was thinking because because if that is described later and that's the thing I can't remember from because it's a while since I wrote the book if that comes up later then that's what he was referring to if not then you've got me stumped okay um, well I'll tell you what in the, the in the Weedenfield and Nicholson paperback yeah page 158 so listeners if you know that what I've missed here Put me and Michelle out of our misery and write into me and tell me. <laughs> Something I haven't thought about. I've just turned it up. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's got me stumped as well. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, that's that's fascinating. Um, I'm wondering if it is that about the dog, but I'm not sure. Um, okay. I have to come back to you on that one. I may I may have to look that one up. You know what? It's fine either way because even if he even if he he hasn't told us, that's an, a level of enigma that I quite like, and it actually ties yeah. into my next question, right? Because I wondered if that reference was to an unspecified sexual experience, because you know Jack's latent homosexuality is a key aspect of this story. He falls it is, it is. in love with one of his his um, teammates. Mm. Was that something that you? always wanted to address in this book no it wasn't um it's it wasn't consciously there from the beginning um and just to answer your thing about no i i didn't have an image in my mind that he had had any sexual experience mm -hmm. um the, the thing about him being gay i didn't know he was gay at the beginning and, and when i wrote the first draft um I was getting towards the end and I had no, no inclining of it. I, I just knew he had a special friendship with, mm. with Gus, who's very, very beautiful. Um, th there, there are two reasons for it. I mean, th the first one was a technical one. Um, whom do I kill at the end of the story? Mm. Um, so spoiler alert, major spoiler alert. But I'd originally thought the dog's going to get it. Um, Isaac, this dog, mm. that this husky that Jack forms a special bond with, the dog's going to, going to die. And to me, that could be sufficiently tragic. Um, but then I thought to myself, yeah, you know, for some people, a dog dying, yeah, it's not really going to do it. Do you mean it wouldn't be enough or it would be too much? It wouldn't It wouldn't be enough. For some oh, people, it would be too much. You've got me up pegged all wrong. I know, I know, I know. And me too. But, you know, so I thought, no. It's... And then when you're writing, you, you, you just sort of brainstorm everything. And I thought, well, I can't possibly bring in a woman, um, you know, because it's 1937. They wouldn't have one. Mm you know, on an Arctic expedition. And then I thought, well, okay, what if what if he's in love with Gus? Then, then then you're talking. And the next moment I thought, well of course he is. You just haven't spotted it. Mm. Um and 
it was it was one of the best bits of sort of changing a story I've ever done because it needed so little, and that you you quite often know it, it's there it's been there from the start because you don't, I didn't need to change anything I hardly needed to change anything it just needed to be brought out, um, and then as soon as I realised that I thought oh god poor Jack, you know it's nineteen thirties being gay in London, that must have been awful because it's illegal and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, if you were Noel Coward and you were rich and famous, you could get away with it, but not someone like Jack. Um, so it was there all the time, but I didn't know it consciously. And it was the technical sort of demands of the climax that brought it out. Uh, and it was a very satisfying realisation. It makes me sound really nasty doesn't it but yeah you know it was satisfying because it's a strong ending because he you know he loses the love of his life sort of thing um, yeah i love the sentence who am i going to kill yeah exactly. well, that's what you have to do you know you, <laughs> you have to have a, a strong climax and I, I like you know i'm the sort of writer who, who needs to know what's going to happen at the climax i know some mm. brilliant writers don't know and they work towards it but yeah and, and they they write brilliant books but that's not the way i write and, and i need to know um but the way at least Isaac the dog lives because <laughs> I couldn't remember. And when, when Isaac jumps in the ocean and you don't mention him for like 20 pages, I was like, oh, Isaac's <laughs> gone. And then and then you just say, Isaac's still with me. And my heart soared, Michelle. Oh, good. That, that dog. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I, I'm writing a piece at the minute, actually, an article about dogs in fiction. And, Ooh, and more, more nice. and, and they, oh, Isaac, Isaac will get a mention. But oh, more and you. more... Um, I, I find they are increasing at the heart of any story they're in for me. <laughs> well, they, they, they do tend to, you know, steal the show a bit, don't yeah. they? Um, yeah. And actually, I, I, I knew I could have a, because he ends up in, in Jamaica, Isaac, but I knew yeah. I could have a, a husky in, in the tropics because my grandmother yeah. had a husky in Natal in New, in South Africa. So um, I knew they could survive. Uh-huh. Well, but to go back to Jack and, and Gus and their, yes. their kind of one-sided love affair, it, it, it yeah. is both a much-needed source of warmth in the novel because the novel is cold mm. in, in many ways, you know, yeah. tonally and yeah. in temperature. Um, but it's also, as you say, the ultimate tragedy. And, and I think that the tribute at the end, Jack's kind of like yearly tribute to Gus where he, mm. he, he visits the ocean that he's so scared of mm. just so he can, he can commune with the man that he lost it's like he's so brave and so sad and and it kind of completes what for me is the redemption of a character who for a significant portion of the book is not easy to like he's not a bad man but he's not a man that's easy to like because he's just so closed off and defensive do you read the book as a redemption as a, as a journey towards something well well i think i do in a way because the strange thing it and i didn't i didn't start off like that you know, my main aim was to write a ghost story. And, and so I didn't, you know, I had some sense of Jack and, and I'd, I'd done some work on him. But um, I, I realised as I was writing him, particularly once I, I knew that he was actually in love with Gus, that the strange thing that, you know, he's frozen when he start, the story starts off. He's emotionally frozen and he thaws um, in, in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. You know, emotionally he thaws in the Arctic because he falls in love. Um, of course, you know, tragedy ensues and everything, but that's the sort of thing, that's what I love about writing. You, you, I, no, no amount of planning could have told me that, um, but it's the sort of thing you discover when, when you're writing the book. 
so yes, I mean, I, I liked Jack all the way through. <laughs> Fair enough, I can understand why people wouldn't. But I just feel so sorry for him. Um, I put him through a lot. No, I really understood Jack because mm. this isn't to get all, you know, you know, I'm not manning the barricades here, but for so much mm. of my life, I've been the working class person in a rarefied right. environment. You know, I, I went yeah. to Durham University and I was, well, I lived yeah. in Durham Castle. God. <laughs> um, and I was just, I was a Northern oik. Do you know what I mean? And, <laughs> um, yeah. and, and thankfully I found my, my people mm. and some, mm. some of it crossed the class divide. But, you know, when I meet people in America, I always say this accent that I have is a marker of so many things back home mm. that you mm. just don't understand. Yeah. Um, so I, I got Jack. I got that feeling of like, yes. you know, having to sort of having to sort of act up for people who demand respect that they don't necessarily deserve in the first place. You know, I, I understand that. Yes. And, and many of your characters are challenging because you write in a time when classism was even more overt than it still is, and you yes. portray the chauvinistic racism of the English adventurer very well. Thank you. Is that a difficult thing to balance, to be authentic about those things without rendering a character despicable? Well, it's it's strange. Um, I mean, I tr- it's, it is difficult because... What you don't want to do is have your protagonist being the only one who can see that, you know, we should treat Mm -hmm. native people nicely and all the rest of it, because that's just importing 21st century attitudes onto somebody who wouldn't have had them. But equally, if you if you show them as an out and out racist, you're going to alienate people Mm -hmm. completely. I think what always helps me is is the research, um, listening to contemporary voices. I mean, to take Thin Air, for example, you know, I read a lot of the mountaineering um, uh, accounts. I mean, a lot of these mountaineers were pretty good writers and, and they would write accounts of climbing Kanchenjunga or whatever, and then they'd describe their interactions with porters. Some of them were horrifically racist, mm. and that, and that's actually quite useful in one way because, you know, it gives you examples uh, and things that you can put in for your your less sympathetic characters, but not all of them were. Um, and then that can give you a way of describing through the prism of of uh, an early twentieth century person how they're sort of groping towards an understanding that this is a person who actually knows the mountains really well, so deserves mm-hmm. respect. Um, but it is it is difficult, and probably even more difficult now. I mean. I, you know, um, certainly, yeah. I, I wrote those books before sensitivity readers were invented, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it is difficult. It is difficult um, because you're trying to show that this person is of their particular time, and their their views would be of that time. And somehow you've got to show. Well, I mean, some people, I suppose, think that I hold those views. I mean, I got a letter actually from somebody of Jamaican heritage. Um, complaining years ago because Jack actually, when he's in, he's living in Jamaica, he he refers perhaps slightly disparagingly to the Jamaican beliefs in duppies. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he's been disparaging because a he's been through a much more terrifying haunt, and b he is a man of his time, you know. Um, but that reader was offended, and so I had to write back and say, well, you know, those aren't my views. Mm. <laughs> That's Jack who's 
you know, somebody of the 1930s. Um, so you can't stop all readers from from seeing your views as as those of the of the character. Um, I mean, I, I think largely that has to be a consideration you just ignore because like yeah. you know yeah. that's such a basic precept of the relationship between readers and authors and books that if that has gone awry what hope is there for the the discourse yeah. do you know what I mean yeah but exactly but you you do balance it very well um because both Jack and and Stephen you know they they don't in any way endorse the the barbarism of some of their companions but they do hold views that they would have held at those times i mean in in thin air what what i think is really successful is the way that you show stephen moving from a real contempt for native ritual to understanding that we all have ritual you know yeah there's there's one part where they find a cairn and he says he leaves a stone on the cairn and he Mm. has to quickly clarify to himself and to the reader um he sort of goes and of course that isn't superstition that's just yes. traditional mountaineering practice you know and it's like yes. yeah the irony is palpable on the page but later on he then actually says we all have rituals and it's a bit of a learning curve yeah. for him and i mean yes. it's not for me to tell you but my answer to the question of whether it's okay to show people having re- retrograde views is if they learn something along the way then yeah surely that's a good thing you know what i mean the, the example that comes yeah. to mind for me and th- this may upset listeners and i mean I'm, I'm up for the conversation did you ever see the film three billboards outside ebbing missouri yes i did yeah so i mean this is way left field but i think it speaks to the conversation so that that was one of my probably my favorite film i'd seen in like five ten years i loved yeah, it good film. Mm. it just spoke to me and it came out mm. to such fanfare and then it was completely just just savaged by industry press and by social media because the conclusion hinges on a character who is an overt racist doing something brave and there was an anger that a racist character could be presented in a positive light really yeah and i didn't know that now i'm very aware that we are too you know, <laughs> privileged white people speaking to each other. So mm-hmm. I'm aware there are other, other mm. there is currency in this conversation for other people. But mm. if you if we've reached a point where we cannot show that flawed people are multifaceted, what's the point of stories? Yeah, yeah. And conversely, I would say if you know, I mean, to give you an example, my next story will be set in the a rainforest, mm-hmm. and. So indigenous people come into it. Um, not all the indigenous people in my story are nice. <laughs> okay, you know, but again, you know, and, and I, I don't think I'll have a problem with the publishers, but or, or, I don't know, you know. Um, so, so that's the other, the flip side is, you know, because in a way that would be patronising if you have to every you know indigenous culture has to be portrayed as the noble savage. That would be deeply patronising. They're human beings. Some are nice, some are nasty. You know. Yeah. Um, so I agree it's 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 the the other side of the coin and um, there, there does seem to be a tendency to, to view things in terms of black and white mm. um, you even put it at one point in the book um, I can't remember even which book it is but somebody des- describes the native populace as their half child half devil that if you, that's the trap to fall into isn't it you know that it's exactly. one or the other 
Exactly. You know? And and that that's the kind of phrase that, which I didn't make up mm. and I couldn't make up because you know I don't have that mindset. But you, you read that in, in one of the I read that in one of the you know mountaineers, contemporary mountaineers of the of the time. And you thought, what? You know, but that's how they view them. And and it's um it's a very vivid phrase, hence it got copied down. Well, speaking of devilry, both dark matter and thin air hinge on historical acts of quite extreme cruelty. So we don't need to yes. spoil it, actually, either one, because the, yeah. the conversation doesn't need the detail. Um, but, yeah, what what happens to the people that become the ghosts in both cases is, mm. is quite horrendous. And when I was reading it, I just kept sort of chuckling to myself, wondering... <laughs> How you felt when you were writing and coming up with those parts? Did did you have fun flexing those more gruesome muscles? Because it, it's quite a shocking shift from the the rather genteel tone of the books. Otherwise, <laughs> I know, and and it does make me smile in a way. You know, when I sort of said at the outset, no, 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 these aren't horror. You know, definitely not horror. But then, you know, flensing knives come into dark matter, and mm. and as you say, yes, nasty goings on in, in the Himalayas. Um. I don't really know where that comes from. All I can tell you is that when I'm planning a story, I I, I know when something's strong, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's always the word I use. Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be horrific, but when it, if I read something, I think, oh gosh, that's usually a sign that I ought to 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 do something with it. So I suppose partly because dark matter and thinner that they're set in extreme locations one is extreme latitude one is extreme altitude so we are talking and and we're very very isolated places where the normal rules don't apply so i think in those circumstances that that seems to call for um extremities of cruelty neglect abandonment that sort of thing because the rules don't apply nobody's Mm. going to find you out or so they think um so I'm partly blaming the environment. <laughs> um, it, it just seemed to to bring out that sort of thing. Um, whereas, you know, a, a story like Wakenhurst, which is set in, in you know, Suffolk in, mm. in Edwardian England, yes, there's savagery, but it's it's more restrained um, and it's it's not avert physical cruelty to the same extent. It's it's not really well. I suppose yeah, no, there is an ice pick in that. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I, I just think at some point, even if you don't show it, and I don't, I don't really show it, um, but you just have to have that sense of violence in the background, either in the past or you know the corner of the eye. Mm. You need that sense of physical threat, um, even if the ghost. And I think this is very important. The ghost should never be exerting a physical effect on on the protagonist because then it's it's just a monster and not a ghost. That's very interesting because one of the things I was going to ask you, and then as mm. I read it, I, the, the book kind of answered my question: is whether this is a ghost or whether it's something more demonic or or other. You think of it very much as a ghost in in a traditional Edwardian sense. You mean in Dark Matter and Thinner? Yeah, um, yeah. No, I, I definitely in those two books, I definitely thought of it as um, a, 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 the ghost, a, the, the remnant of a person. Mm-hmm. Um, not as something, although <laughs> that's how I thought of it. But even in Dark Matter, I, I leave it a little bit open because I do, there is a discussion when I think Jack is reading 
in folklore or something like that about you know the draug and the, mm. the ghost of the drowned person and that sort of thing there's a slight it's always good to bring in folklore and and um nr james had a wonderful feel for that he used tradition as a way of validating the haunt yeah and both books reflect on the sort of existential horror of being a ghost to sort yeah. of to wander eternally in this dark wilderness mm. and it it's something that i had a conversation again recently about six months ago when this goes live with the author chuck tingle who who writes about a hell that is an endless void and he was saying mm. that he's terrified haunted by the notion that that may be what is after death and i wonder do you have mm. a similar fear are you scared of what comes after death because though the, the the centrality of that wilderness gives the sense that you are well i would agree with him that that is a scary idea um personally i'm not frightened of it because i mean belief is a you know let's just be clear about terms belief is mm -hmm. a sort of irrational hunch it's not susceptible to reason it's just you know what i believe i tend to believe that once you're dead it's lights off you mm -hmm. know that's probably because i'm you know ex-biochemist and you know the brain stops working there, there is evidence that it goes on for a little bit, but then it's lights out. Um, and so I think consciousness ends with death. I really hope so, because I don't personally find the idea of life after death anything other than horrifying. Because um, I've never been able to get around the idea. That, I mean, if it's me and I'm still, you know, conscious, then so is my capacity for boredom and my willing one needing to communicate and everything and I wouldn't have that mm -hmm. so that's what I find don't like you know I don't, I don't understand when people say oh no there has to be something else because that, that would be a comforting idea I don't find any comfort in that Michelle you're the first person to ever say these words back to me this is my exact philosophy that you know for me all of religious thought is predicated on the idea that we cannot conceive of ceasing to be and that, yes. that, that's the most yes. terrifying thing. To me, there is nothing more consoling than the fact that one day you go to sleep and you're never aware ever again. That's yeah. just, yeah. I don't get how that's not a consolation to everyone because just have a good time, be nice to people and then lights out. That's a good thing, surely. <laughs> well, I would think so. Um, al although I have to say then my next thought is usually, well, yep, I'm a, I'm a privileged white person living in Wimbledon. Um, you know, I've got enough to eat and all the rest of it and... That is a very if good point. If you hadn't, I mean, my grandfather spent four years fighting in the trenches in the First World War, um, saw most of his friends killed, and then the Second World War, he was in the resistance. Um, I think in, during some bombardments, you know, he, he he kind of made a deal with God. Uh, he didn't really like God, but he sort of made a deal with him and said, look, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church every, every week. And he did. Um, and he sort of... I think when if you've had a miserable life or, or something, then maybe it is consolation, you know, to, to believe in the afterlife. But for me, not. That's a very good point that I hadn't considered. So getting towards the end, we haven't really done anything on Wakenhurst. So I'll have listeners who are hoping I do. So let's finish with a few words about, about Wakenhurst. Because for a start, what, after two adventure horror novels yes. that share a certain similar structure yes. what what prompted the turn to domestic gothic well this is an example of when 
an idea gradually comes together from lots of other ideas sort of swirling together, lots of elements, I should say. I mean, I'd always wanted to write something about the Fens. And if people haven't heard of them, you know, they used to be a sort of vast area of um, southeast England, which were marshlands and then were drained um, a few hundred years ago, but have always retained a sort of folklore and a, a culture that's a little bit otherworldly because it's neither water nor land or used to be. So I've always been attracted to that. And there were various strange saints and things, characters. And I wanted to do something gothic a bit closer to home and with a, a female protagonist. Um, I was interested in the Edwardian times because things are changing. So it's a sort of uneasy time. But I didn't really have a focus. And then, and then three things came along in three weeks. Um, in a charity shop, I picked up a secondhand uh, translation of a, a weird um, medieval mystic called um, Marjorie Kemp. And I just thought she's so strange. I've got to do something with her. She just cried a lot and had 17 children or something. Um, and then uh, I read about something called the Wakenhurst, sorry, the, the, the Weniston Doom, um, which is a, a doom is a painting of a medieval painting of the Last Judgment. And, and this thing was in a, a Suffolk church and it had been whitewashed by the Puritans um, because they wanted to blank out all images in the church, forgotten for 300 years. Victorians renovated the church, chucked out what they thought were a load of old whitewashed planks. That night, there was a rainstorm in the graveyard and um, washed away some of the, the, the whitewash. And so this wonderful... Um, bizarre medieval last judgment was discovered um, and that gave me an idea for the main character making that discovery but, but he sees in the grass he sees a, a demonic eye from the painting staring out at him and it it animates it it awakens his his guilt from something he did when he was a child um, and then the third thing element was going to an exhibition of of um Richard Dad, who was this very strange, deranged Victorian painter who killed his father with an axe and ended up in a criminal asylum painting bizarre paintings of tiny creatures. So all of these, you know, that's a lot, but it all came together. Uh, and I thought, I've got to do something with these elements. Uh, and that's, it's from that rich Gothic mix that Wakenhurst mm. emerged. Well, as I said earlier, apologies to the listener. I, I didn't get a chance to reread Wakenhurst, so I can't really delve into it in the same way. I can only read so many books, guys, you know. Um, one, from, from memory, one of the things that interested me about it is that even though it is Maud, right? Maud is yes, Maud, that's right. Yeah. So even though Maud is confined to the dour domesticity of the Suffolk Fens, mm. in her way, she's just as isolated as your adventuring heroes um, in, in more ways in, in, in some sort of slants because she doesn't have the brotherhood they have. That's right. You do seem above all else interested in the space between the psychological and the supernatural impact of isolation. Is that fair? That's the one connective yes. tissue yeah. between yeah. all three ghost stories. I think, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's partly technical because when when you're writing about a haunting, whatever it is, whether it's by a demon or, or a ghost or, or whatever, um, I think at some point you want to get the protagonist or the hauntee on their own 
um, in their own head uh, and then subject them to the haunt. And as I said, I'm interested in the possibilities of the human mind. And and it's when you're under stress and alone, um, psychologically isolated, that that, um, that those possibilities can come to the fore. In, in the form of a haunt or, or whatever, um, and you're right. I mean, she's she, she's growing up. She's a privileged Victor, um, Edwardian child, but she's growing up. That means she's growing up in an isolated manor house in on the edge of the what remains of the fens, uh, and she's struggling with two systems of belief in the house. She's got a fundamentalist Christian father, um, so his beliefs are you know law, and then the servants who are just as real. Uh, are in fact sort of bringing her up have their own superstitious beliefs which are very very strong and she's trying to find her way between them and trying to understand what's real and what isn't um and as you say she hasn't you know there's a little pretty unsympathetic brother um and then the mother whom she loses so she's very isolated and um it's fun taking her from when she's a young child through to teenagerhood when she has this, hmm. it becomes a two-hander. It's a battle of wills with her father. And parts of the story, most of the story is told from her point of view, but it's also his journals. Um, when we gradually sort of have to decide, is, is he possessed by whatever haunts the fens or is he losing his mind? You know, um, Is there something out there in the fens or, or is he losing his mind? Either way, she's in trouble. They are a spooky part of the world, the fens. They are. <laughs> they, they do are. feel in some ways as cut off as the Arctic North. They, they, they can do. I mean, I've, mm. again, you know, the, the research was, it was easier to get to Suffolk. Um, yeah. But I did some of the research, you know, I'd done that on purpose. I went there at uh, All Souls um, beginning of November, just happened to be a sea fog rolling in. Um, and I went out onto what I had chosen, one of the more haunted parts of the fens by repute. Hoping, hoping against hope to, to, you know, experience a ghost or something. I didn't, but um, it didn't matter. You know, you're still out there and it's still pretty scary. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, would you ever return to adventure horror? Because, I, I mean, you mentioned before you're writing a book set in the jungle. Is that a ghost story in, in this vein? Or Well, um, a, a reader once used a wonderful phrase, and I don't know if it's they had coined it or if it was it's some, a term of art, but they, they called my work survivalist gothic, which I really <laughs> liked. That was Dark Matter of the Thin Air, um, survivalist gothic. And the one I've, well, I'm writing, um, I've sort of pretty much finished, but there's editing to do and that sort of thing. I think that is another one in that tradition. Um, we're, we're set in the, in the rainforest. So... Um, without wanting to include, you know, to tell you anything about it. It's set in the rainforest. So, yes, there's going to be some survivalist elements in it. Excellent. Um, which uh, it's it's just interesting to put your protagonist through physical difficulties as, as well as metaphysical ones. Let's put it that way. Yes, definitely. Um, leeches <laughs> are plenty, I imagine, in that one. Leeches do come into it. Funny you should mention. Oh, yep. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Last question before I do my closing pair. Yeah. Would you ever write a female-fronted adventure horror? Because I know you mentioned before that, historically speaking, it's quite difficult to put women in those positions. Mm, mm. But you, in your research that I was reading about, you do mention some indomitable women. Um, <laughs> from like I think in Dark Matter, you reference a trapper's wife who overwintered yes. alone in the Arctic. And in Thin Air... 
this I've forgotten the name terribly. I think it was but Fanny Fanny Workman. She was an American who summited. Yeah, she summited some of the the, the Karakorums, and um, she left a votes for women banner <laughs> um, <laughs> on the top, um, and her I think it was her business card in a jam jar. Um, she was amazing. <laughs> yes, and and I. And there were others. There were others. There was several who climbed um, climbed Mont Blanc, and th- they were amazing. But it's a really good question. Um, I th- I think then because they were amazing and they were sort of standouts, then the story becomes about the fact that they're female in a man's world. Um, right. Yeah. And I haven't I haven't been that attracted to that in the Gothic setting, um, because. It just seems to me a distraction, really. Uh, so I, I, it's the sort of thing that I, I tend to think about for a few minutes when I'm planning, and then I think, mm, no, probably not. And it's a great question because, I mean, there are brilliant ones. I mean, I was thinking, you know, um, Sarah Moss's um, wonderful Arctic story, Cold Earth, um, has females you know on the expedition that's a modern expedition in 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 i think it is spitsbergen actually it might be or in the arctic anyway or greenland i think it's yeah that's greenland um but that's modern and i tend to like to set my stories in the more recent past partly because i don't want the internet around you know i don't want them to be able to just dial up somebody and, and get help that way um and then because you're setting it in the past you know that tends to rule out women um, and it just makes it simpler, you know, um, which is strange because I'm a woman, but uh, there we go. No, I do get the point about how it becomes, it then becomes a novel that it's almost, I don't I don't like to use the word gimmick because it sounds too cheap, but it almost becomes like the focus is the point that, oh, isn't this different because it's a well, woman? That's... How, then how do you jump that hurdle? Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, I, I prefer it to be a little bit more, you know, these are just a group of people and, and let's get on with the, the story. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Well, mm. you've talked very generously about your own books, Michelle. Could I ask you to recommend a book for my listeners and, and tell us why you've picked that one? Yes. Um, I'm going to be greedy and say two. Uh, and apologies, these are both old, but there we go. They are available. Um, the first one is, this is this is quite esoteric. This is okay. This is for somebody who knows their MR James and they've read all, you know, Edith Wharton and all, you know, Kipling and all that sort of thing. Somebody called B.M. Croker, C-R-O-K-E-R, and it's a volume of her ghost stories called Number 90, Number 90 and Other Ghost Stories. It's published by the Swan River Press in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, It's still available on Amazon. I have checked. And I first came across B.M. Croker. She was was, um, Irish and she was I think she was Irish anyway she was in the in the in India during the time of the British Raj and she wrote a few not many really good ghost stories these are short stories she wrote one called To Let uh, set in a hill station in the British Raj um, which is a classic story just straightforward haunting but really well written so not all of her stories succeed but she she writes she knows whereof she wrote and um I, I do recommend it. It's you know, mm-hmm. it, for those of you who've got jaded palates, um, try that. And the other one, Margaret Oliphant, O L I P H A N T. She's been anthologized, a classic ghost story, The Open Door. Some of you may know. 
Um, there's a volume of her collected ghost stories, A Beleaguered City, Stories of the Seen and Unseen. That's available by Canongate, from Canongate. And that's a particular plea for her. I love her writing. Um, and also it's because I live in the house where she died. Um, and <laughs> yes, I do. And it was partly why I bought it. She only lived here for a year, uh, but she was... She was somebody who did believe in the afterlife and she was quite looking forward to, to moving on. She was tired. Um, and the first night I was in this house, I read her classic story, The Open Door. And I said to her, Margaret, you're anthologized, so you're still remembered. Not that I believe in ghosts, but I, I just thought I should stay on the right side of her in case I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, that you are the first person I can say for sure. Um, I don't think anyone's going to say it between recording this going live that lives in the house of dead or mm. they're recommending so there yeah, we go. I, I think for that reason alone you get the right to have two answers so <laughs> thank yeah. you thank you she's worth reading though she's written many books and she's worth reading yeah i'm, I'm aware of her it's the first mm. name that i didn't know but i said that's incredible <laughs> um last question michelle yes what truly scares you you know, I have never been asked that question, and I love being asked questions that are, are new to me, and I really had to think about this. Not that I'm particularly brave. I mean, I am quite scared of spiders, but I don't think that's what you're talking about. Um, but I think what would scare, what does scare me is the thought of being unable to communicate. Um, for example, if I had a stroke, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm 60, 62, so, you know, that sort of approaches that time, if I had a stroke and it made me unable to write or or form words or talk, you know, if I could still think and hear, but I couldn't communicate, I think I find that thought, and this does happen, you know, I find that thought very frightening. And then my next thought was, well, that's not a million miles away from the idea of being a ghost. You know, what we were talking about earlier, the rather mm-hmm. bleak idea of, you know, mm-hmm. consciousness not being able to communicate with the living. That is, I find that a frightening thought. Bleak and frightening. That is a terrifying thought, yeah, especially Mm. for people who make a living from communication like you do and and which I I do, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. wow. Uh, More adventure, less dwelling on that, I think. Yes, I think so too, yes. Let's celebrate the adventure. Um, And and you know what, your book definitely do in in the darkest way imaginable and, like quite often at the end of these episodes i i sort of wrap up by recommending that people go and read them i don't think i'll need to from the look of the responses to my social media posts about you coming on the show but if you haven't read dark matter and thin air and and wakenhurst like i said right at the start i think they're part of the canon of contemporary ghost stories so have at it um all i've got to say is michelle paver thank you so very much for talking scared Well, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Neil. First things first, I just want to say that I do know that episodes of this show have been getting longer recently. Um, You may not care, but it's something I'm quite paranoid about because often when a podcast begins to sprawl, it means that the people making it have lost editorial self-control um i hope that's not the case here i mean how do you not take all the time you can with michelle paver and to warn you the next few weeks are going to have some seriously bumper episodes 
But I'm, I'm hoping to get it back to a pared down, rigorously tight show in 2024. Because if nothing else, 30 minutes less means hours and hours less editing, <laughs> which is good for me. But either way, I just want you to know that I've not just fallen in love with my own voice. Well, no more than I had when I first thought, let's make a podcast so the people can hear what I think. <laughs> um, but what I think this week is just, well... Wow, right? Michelle really is gothic royalty, as far as I'm concerned. I first read Dark Matter at university for a book club, and I just loved it. But I loved it way, way more on this reread. And now I understand why people think it's so damn scary. Um, Thin Air is also great. Now, there is a sort of argument to be made that Thin Air is retreading similar ground to Dark Matter, and I suppose it is, but it's so confidently done. And I just love mountain fiction so much that I was just delighted by it. Um, Oh, and after that confusion about the terrible thing that Jack did in Dark Matter, the thing that neither Michelle nor I could quite work out, she followed up with an email to confirm that she's 98% sure that he was referring to the awful memory of a dog being killed when he was a boy, though she allows that there could indeed be some repressed sexual experience buried deep in Jack's memory. And I think that works. And and she says she likes the idea of leeway to interpret. So there you go. If any of you are indeed writing a thesis on the Freudian implications of dark matter and its wailing post, more grist for your mill. <laughs> I'm sorry that I didn't get to ask more about Wakenhurst. I know that many of you love that book as well, and it is a good book, but for me it's not of a piece with the others, aside from that through line of isolation that we mentioned at the end. And to be honest, I've covered lots of gothic novels on this show, and I'm always happy to do so, (laughs) but it felt the least urgent to discuss here. But you should definitely read it. And how cool that it took us to the Fens, to Eastern England, which got mentioned in last week's chat with Gemma Amore. See where it all ties together? Almost like our planet? I mean, that was a nice, clean feedback loop, considering these episodes were recorded half a year apart. As is the fact that I brought up Peter Straub's ghost story, because when we recorded this episode, I had no idea I'd be doing a deep dive into that book, But hey presto, the deep dive into ghost story is out in two weeks on Christmas Eve, no less. Wheels within wheels. I want to say one more thing before I outstay my welcome on this very long episode. I'm not entirely convinced by this idea of eliding female adventurers from historical fiction just because of ease and practicality. I do get it, I understand Michelle's point of view, um... But things I've read have made me think there are other ways to go about that. I mean, I haven't read the Sarah Moss book that Michelle mentioned, Cold Earth, but it sounds great. I mean, the synopsis says that it's about a group of female academics stuck in Greenland during a lethal global pandemic, and they uncover all sorts of horrors, historical and personal. I mean, that sounds fantastic, right? And Sarah Moss is a wonderful writer. So if anyone's read Cold Earth... Let me know what you think. But I'd also throw into the mix a book I read over the summer. It's not horror by any means. In fact, I read it as a brief respite from all this darkness and carnage. It's called Great Circle 
by Maggie Shipstead. And it's, I mean, it's famous. It won all kinds of awards. But in a nutshell, it's an American epic about a fictional female aviator in the early days of flight. And it's just wonderful. It has loads of anecdotes about real women who did mad things in janky aeroplanes. And it's this really rich, immersive read about female adventurers. So I thought I'd mention that as a counterpoint to what Michelle and I discussed. Also, very briefly, apropos of nothing, I briefly mentioned in this conversation that I wrote an article for Esquire about brave dogs in fiction. Um, And essentially I wrote that explicitly to make you cry and then hug your dog. So the link's in the show notes if you haven't read it already. Right, I'm, I'm done for this week. Get in touch about whatever, but especially about Michelle Paver's work. I'd love to hear your thoughts and interpretations because there's plenty of room for both. You can find me on social media of all kinds at TalkScaredPod or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And don't forget the Patreon. It's there with tons more episodes and candid reviews. If you want to support the show, just sign up at patreon.com slash TalkingScaredPod and you will get extra rations around the campfire. (laughs) I'm back next week with the massive annual State of the Horror Nation. Fantastic guests and over two full hours of horror highlights to discuss. But until then, wrap up warm, huddle with those close to you, and don't let the fire go out. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.